So today's sermon text, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, was written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in Him, you would have life in His name. John 3, 1 to 15, no doubt a familiar passage to many, probably most, maybe all, who are gathered today, but I invite you to encounter the Lord in it afresh, to meet Jesus in these 15 verses. So ask the Spirit to do that for you, even as we read now. Follow along silently. I'm reading from the New American Standard, verse 1 of John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please meet me at His throne? Father, we thank You for the sovereign Holy Spirit. God, the third person of the Trinity. Who causes dead people to be spiritually reborn, forgiven of sins, united to Christ, given an everlasting inheritance, and we thank you that you know who those people are and who they are not. Would you show us who we are? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is the first discourse, extended teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of John. But unlike all the remaining ones that we'll bump into in this series through John's Gospel, This is the only one that's directed from Jesus to one individual, Jesus and Nicodemus. 
We're just going to allow the interchanges of this encounter to guide our sermon today. There's three interchanges in the one encounter. Nicodemus, then Jesus. Nicodemus, then Jesus. Nicodemus, then Jesus. So we'll take it in that order. The first interchange is verses 1 through 3. Listen to it again. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Thus concludes the first interchange, and you'll see in verse 4, it begins with Nicodemus again speaking. So in that first interchange, before we dive into it, let's just make sure we have our bearings for where we are in John's narrative. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the first time during his public ministry. It is during the Passover. As we heard last week and saw at the end of John 2, he's just driven the money changers from the temple with a whip of cords, and it led to his first confrontation with the religious leaders. We're told at the end of John chapter 2, a penetrating, piercing reality. Verse 23 of John 2, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all. He knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there weren't chapter and verse divisions, as you guys know, in the original manuscripts of the Bible, John also. And so when you end chapter 2, he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, anthropo, for he himself knew what was in man, anthropo, John 3, 1, now there was a man, Anthropos. John is connecting what we're finding in chapter 3 to what he had just said at the end of chapter 2. He knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So John is not so subtly letting us know at the beginning of this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus that Jesus knew his heart. And as a result, I believe Jesus therefore directs the conversation with a laser focus to Nicodemus' greatest need. See, Jesus isn't going to play surfacey games with you either. Or with me. He knows your heart. He is tender and mild. As was prayed in our prayer service just a moment ago, He is gentle and lowly of heart. But he's not going to play surfacey games with you. While he is meek, while he is mild, while he is gentle, while his heart is lowly and receptive to you, he knows your greatest need. And if you have a true encounter with him, he's not going to pretend like he doesn't know. So in this first interchange between Nicodemus and Jesus, we learn several things about Nicodemus and we learn several truths from Jesus. Let's look at them. We learn six things about Nicodemus in those first few verses. Verse 1, he's a man of the Pharisees. And today, while many rightly, understandably, think derogatorily about the Pharisees because of the preponderance of material in the Gospels and the New Testament about them, they were very religious people, but they did not have 
a heart relationship with God through Christ, while we think derogatorily about them today, understandably so, in Jesus' day, they were the most highly respected group. They were revered. They were admired. Nicodemus is one of those men. Number two, we learn he's not only a man of the Pharisees, but we also learn in verse one, he is a ruler, NAS puts it, of the Jews. This almost certainly means that he was not only a Pharisee, but also a member of the governing body of the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the 70 most elite among the Pharisees. Third, we learn that he approaches Jesus at night. John gives us this little detail. Now, we understand, and we ought to understand, the Holy Spirit did not include any detail in the Bible randomly. And this one is included. Nicodemus comes, verse 2, at night. But we are left to just maybe use our sanctified speculation. We don't know exactly why he came at nighttime. Many would deduce and infer that perhaps it was because he didn't want his religious, his elite religious friends to know that he was inquiring of Jesus. Maybe he would have been embarrassed if he knew that they found out. Number four, we learn from number two that he greets Jesus with an honorific title, rabbi. Now, it was one thing for people to call people rabbi in the New Testament. It's another thing for a Pharisee and a Sanhedrin member to refer to somebody else as rabbi. This is an honorific, honoring title. It's no small honor for a Pharisee member of the Sanhedrin to boot, to honor another person as rabbi. So while he comes to him at night, my sanctified hunch is he's trying to butter Jesus up. Especially because of what follows in the next sentence, which is number five, we learn that he and his peers we're aware of Jesus and Jesus' quote, signs. Verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It seems like he might be patronizing Jesus. Richard Phillips says, there is, I believe, more than a hint of patronage in these words. Meaning, Phillips is suggesting that this verse indicates that Nicodemus was appearing kind, saying nice words, that were a cloak or a veil for a feeling of superiority to Jesus. Oh, yeah, we all know. Like, we who really know God, we all know God must be with you. The plural pronoun, we, we know, verse 2, indicates that Nicodemus presented himself as one who spoke not only for himself, but also for others, for his peers, the fellow Pharisees, probably the Sanhedrin especially. And if you were in Nick's circle of friends, you represented some very powerful others. We know. So it's not just Nicodemus and a bunch of nobodies. It's Nicodemus and a bunch of somebodies. We know. Another reason I think he's buttering Jesus up. Nicodemus seems to be trying to influence Jesus with his status It's a power game, and he's trying to intimidate, I think, Jesus with his position. Well, John only gives us those bare essentials in the introductory interchange about Nicodemus, but Richard Phillips goes on to suggest that this is probably what a full conversation sounded sort of like 
Phillips understands that John didn't record this, but Phillips, like any careful Bible reader, should also understand John doesn't say everything about the whole conversation. It was probably a lot longer than what we have in the 15 verses I read to you. So Philip says it might have sounded something like this. Nicodemus speaking. We, we know that you're from God. But we hope you understand that things are much different here in the big city of Jerusalem than way out there in little Nazareth. Now you're going to need some good advice, Jesus. And you're going to need some capable handlers some good support and some reliable resources, and, and we can guide you in your affairs if you'll just come along in our circles. So he comes at night. He and his peers are aware of Jesus and his signs. And then the sixth and final thing we learn about Nicodemus in these opening verses is that he expressed an assumption that God was with Jesus, and I really want to say he expressed a doubt that God was with Jesus. Depends on how you inflect your voice when you read the verse. Is it a statement of confidence or is it a statement of doubt? No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Does he believe that to his bones or is he uncertain of that? Well, to many Bible students, the line is taken, as Philip said, as a patronizing compliment. Like many who de today who tip their hat to Jesus, you're a good teacher. But they never bow their knee in submission to him in desperate faith. At this point in the conversation, at best, Jesus is viewed by Nicodemus as something like a good teacher, a miracle worker, a sign performer, someone with whom God is with. And while it's no doubt theologically true, John 1.1, he was in the beginning with God, God was with him. It's a byproduct of the fact that Jesus is God. And that's not what Nicodemus says. So that's what we learn of Nicodemus. But in the second half of that first interchange, we learn four things from Jesus. So in that first interchange, we've learned six things about Nicodemus. And now we learn four truths from Jesus. First, it's in verse 3, Jesus redirects the conversation to Nicodemus' greatest need. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you're reading your Bible out loud, that should sound shocking. Because it's not in accord with what Nicodemus just said. This isn't normal ways that conversations go. Jesus is redirecting the conversation. He's changing the focus of the conversation. He's not continuing it. Nicodemus just said something true about Jesus. You have come from God as a teacher. Verse 2, no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. But Jesus saw right through Nicodemus' thick spiritual veneer. And he saw into his heart, which is what we heard at the end of chapter 2. Jesus knows the heart of every man. Jesus does not even so much as hint, pardon me, John does not so much as hint to us that Jesus was thankful what Nicodemus said. I'm so glad you see what everybody ought to see. John neither expresses from Jesus' vantage point even a subtle hint of appreciation for Nicodemus' words. Not only am I thankful that you see this, Jesus doesn't even 
give a hint of indication that he appreciates that Nicodemus said it to him. He does not affirm Nicodemus. The words were true. But friends, they were spoken by a man who was headed for hell. And Jesus did not come from heaven to earth to put some shocks and struts on the vehicles that hell-bound people are riding in on their pathway to eternal destruction. The Son of Man, which is how Jesus refers to Himself in this passage later, the Son of Man, Luke 19, has come to seek and save that which was lost. He's not trying to say, good for you for seeing a few spiritual truths. He didn't come to teach a systematic theology class. He came to save your soul. Jesus' immediate response in verse 3 ties us back, as I said, to the end of John 2. Jesus didn't entrust Himself to any man. Why? Because He knew all men, 2.24. And because He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, 2.25, for He Himself knew what was in man. Jesus does not hesitate to redirect the conversation to what He knows Nicodemus most desperately needs not only to hear, not only to understand so he can go back to the Sanhedrin and give them a little Bible lesson, but what Jesus knows Nicodemus needs to experience. The new birth was the greatest need in Nicodemus' life. Jesus knew that. Therefore, he would not waste time pretending that anything else was of such vital importance. So, friends, let me, let me do two categories. Brothers and sisters... And friends, two categories, those who are in Christ and those who are not. I've prayed on and off this week as God has prompted me, Lord, help me somehow to convey that we're not talking about important stuff today. We're not talking about six ways that your marriage can honor God more or five ways that you can honor God in your finances or three ways that you can do better in your vocation for the glory of Christ. We're not talking about how to steward your time better. All of those things are super important to God. This is of utmost importance. Therefore, Jesus doesn't waste any time redirecting the conversation. Here's an application before we even move on to the second observation that we learn from Jesus in this opening interchange. Application is this. Isn't it amazing that one of the multiplied, multifaceted aspects of the beauty of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. Isn't it amazing that one of the aspects of His beauty and of His glory is that when spiritually proud people approach Him with patronizing comments, pretending to have our religion all put together, assuming that our presence and our conversation with Him is such a great benefit to Him, isn't it amazing that when we so presume upon Him to barge into His presence on our conditions at nighttime, when it's convenient for us, when it best suits us, when we try to use Him as our lucky rabbit's foot, our Cheshire cat in the sky, our little genie in a bottle, isn't it amazing? That He, the Lord of glory, heaven's favorite, 
the king of the universe, the potentate of time, the creator of the ends of the earth, the one who calls all the stars by name and keeps them in their place and sustains you right now. Isn't it amazing that instead of sending us away into further spiritual declension and letting us live under delusion that we're right with God, He draws us into His heart and He reveals to us our greatest need and He shows us that He Himself is the supply that alone can suffice. I find it amazing that here He's not dealing with a spiritual penitent. He's dealing with a spiritually proud and he welcomes him. Notice what Jesus does in verse 3. This is the second observation from the first interchange. Jesus speaks with divine authority. Truly, truly, I say to you. Amen, amen, let go, soy. I say it on my own authority. Jesus did not refer to what many of the Religious pundits of the day were saying he did not quote a fellow Sanhedrin member back to Nicodemus who loved to quote this man and that man. He spoke on his own authority. Third observation from this first interchange concerning Jesus. Not only did he redirect the conversation to Nicodemus' greatest need, not only did he speak with his own divine authority, number three, he asserted that the new birth precedes seeing the kingdom of God. I'm going to say that again. It's one of the most important truths in the entire Bible. The new birth precedes seeing the kingdom of God. Later we're going to bump into Jesus saying in this passage, the new birth precedes entering the kingdom of God. But here, the focus in verse 3, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So while Nicodemus thought he had pretty clear sight, hey, Jesus, we've heard about you. Oh man, your signs, those are something else. And I just wanted to come and let you know that all the in crowd in Jerusalem here, all the religious somebodies, we just want you to know that we think God's with you. How's this for a response? You've never seen God. You have no idea what you're talking about. Readers who've been keeping up with what John has written in the first two chapters, which Nicodemus was not privy to, but by God's incalculable mercy, you're privy to it. You have access to something that Nicodemus didn't have access to. The first two chapters of John's Gospel preceding this passage where we learn things that Nicodemus didn't know, like chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as receive Jesus... To them He gives the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who are born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Here Jesus says, no one can even see God's kingdom unless they be born again. So our observation is that the new birth precedes seeing the kingdom of God. Do you believe that? Do you think that you're pretty well on your way to spiritual life before you're saved. I've heard people say it this way. Oh man, if so-and-so would get saved, they would make such a great Christian or witness or evangelist or leader. They have so many great leadership skills. Friends, 
If you're one inch away from the kingdom, you're as good as a billion light years away. You've never seen God if you're not saved. You've never seen His kingdom. You know nothing about His heart. You might think you're on the inside looking out or you're close to the inside about to step in, but you're behind a vault door with a lock and a code that you cannot crack. If you believe what Jesus just said in verse 3, you would be the most desperate soul ever to have been born. You would prostrate yourself before the God of the universe and beg Him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. So many New Testament authors deal with the precious truth of regeneration, being made spiritually alive, new born. But John is the only New Testament author who uses the phrase. He can't get it out of his mouth. I believe that a lot of people in today's age who are born again may not have ever even heard the phrase. You don't have to know the truth of the specifics of the doctrine of regeneration to be regenerate. You don't ever have to have heard the phrase, be born again to be born again. But you may be able to explain it up one side and down the other and have never experienced it. It's why John constantly talks about it. John writes in another place, if you know that God is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. In another place, he says, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in Him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In another place, he says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. In another place, he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and whoever loves the Father is a child born of Him. In another place, he says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. He says in one of the most sobering places that he uses this concept, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So Jesus teaches, I want to say clearly, we'll unpack in just a moment, the new birth precedes seeing the kingdom of God. The fourth observation from that first interchange comes also in verse 3. And it's that Jesus infers that belonging to the kingdom of God is the most important citizenship you can have. He's speaking to Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus is somebody. He's got all the credentials. You know, he's the guy who works at the Pentagon and has the lanyard around his neck with all the little secret pass, you know, codes and fobs and every door is open to Nick. He just has all the access. But of all those badges and clearance Nicodemus had to get in everywhere, he could go into the temple. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. For all of the honorific titles, for all the access, for all the spiritual citizenship that Nicodemus had, he was lacking the only credential that mattered in God's sight. He was not a citizen of the kingdom of God. The phrase kingdom of God appears over and over again in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but this is the only place it appears in John. It means a spiritual realm that is only entered into 
through spiritual rebirth. It's another dimension. It's not a geography. It's a life with Christ, in Christ, by Christ. David Ellis in his Acts commentary defines the kingdom of God as, quote, the reign of God where his will is supreme, whether in the individual heart or the community of his people, in this life or the life hereafter. Nicodemus could get into any religious circle that existed, but he could not step foot inside God's kingdom. It was impossible. He couldn't even see it, let alone find it and enter it. And unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom either. I say with a broken heart, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom. In order to have a kingdom, you have to have a king. A lot of people want the kingdom. Do you want the king of the kingdom? Which leads to the second wave of interchanges between Nick and Jesus. Verses 4 to 8. Verse 4, Nicodemus said. Verse 5, Jesus answered. So what do we know about Nicodemus from this second installment of the encounter? There's two things we learn about Nicodemus both in verse 4. First, we learn that Nicodemus assumed Jesus was incorrect. Good teachers do that, don't they? Teaching is a spiritual gift, but any good gift can be abused. Teachers are always correcting people. Sometimes helpfully, sometimes disparagingly. But it's one of those irrecoverable aspects of teachers. <laughs> you hear somebody say something, they get it wrong, you fix it. Nicodemus assumed Jesus was incorrect. Verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? And then Jesus, uh, Nicodemus goes into teacher mode. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? This reveals a lot to us about Nicodemus. Who's right, who's wrong? How does truth work? Second thing we learn about Nicodemus here is he assumed Jesus was speaking about a natural birth. Physical, fleshy. We already know from verse 3 that Nicodemus was incapable of seeing the kingdom of God, but here we also find out that he's ignorant of the necessity of spiritual birth. He's talking about his mother's womb. Jesus didn't say anything about a mother's womb. In verse 9, Nick, Nick is going to get asked by Jesus, are you, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Which implies he should have known them or Jesus wouldn't have put it that way. How should he have known them? Teacher of Israel, Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin, from the Old Testament. That's how he should have known that Jesus is not referring to natural physical birth. He's referring to spiritual birth as the necessity to see the kingdom of God. So what do we learn from Jesus? Second interchange, we learn two things about Nick. He was assuming Jesus was wrong and he was thinking of a spiritual, a physical birth. Here's the truth we learn from Jesus. There are seven things we learn from Jesus in verses 5 to 8. First, 
that Jesus speaks again with divine authority. Truly, truly, I say to you. Not quoting anybody else, he's quoting himself. He's speaking first person for himself. Number two, just like spiritual birth precedes seeing the kingdom, verse 3, we learn in verse 5, the second observation here, that the new birth precedes entering the kingdom. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The third observation, verse 5, is that Jesus is speaking of a dual birth. I don't think he's talking about two births, dual aspects of a rebirth. This passage has led to varied, varied interpretations. Born of water, verse 5, and the Spirit. What does that refer to? What is water? What is spirit? Well, some take this verse to be a reference to Jesus speaking about baptism. And they take baptism to be part of a regenerating power or part of an essential aspect of being united to God. I lovingly say to you, if you ever bump into such doctrine, run for your life. It's simply not true. It's damnable heresy. Anything you add to the work of Christ to save you only diminishes the gospel's power to be saving. There are entire denominations, entire sects of so-called Christendom who embrace such a view. I think this passage and many, many, many others would condemn such a view, and I mean damn such a view, I do not believe that Jesus is referring to one's baptism when he refers to water. So what is he saying? On the surface, we can see that Jesus is affirming the need for a dual birth, born of water and the Spirit. And just as Matt Nash preached here a couple weeks ago, when Jesus turned the water to wine instead of, as Matt said, milk and honey, if that would have happened, everybody who knows their Old Testament would have thought, oh, that's a connection, land of Canaan. He didn't do milk and honey. He changed it to wine. And Matt showed how that miracle was a direct tie to the new covenant promises found in the Old Testament, which are replete with the picture of wine. That's why Jesus turned the water to wine. The new covenant has been inaugurated. The king of the kingdom is here. The long-awaited Messiah has come. That's why that miracle happened in the beginning of chapter 2. So why does Jesus refer to water in the Spirit? The answer is essentially the same. There's a bold connection happening from the lips of Jesus from water and the Spirit to the fulfillment of the new covenant promises found in the Old Testament, which is exactly in verse 9 why Nicodemus should have understood these things. Ezekiel 36, it was prayed a moment ago. I love Grace Church's prayer meetings. Here's my favorite aspect of them. Almost every time, Somebody prays something that gives glowing evidence that they've been meditating on the upcoming sermon passage. This morning, somebody prayed Ezekiel 36. And I was wondering, oh Lord, how many people already see that connection? Why did somebody pray Ezekiel 36? It wasn't random. It's fruit of meditation. Ezekiel 36, 25-27 is exactly where Nicodemus' mind should have gone 
where God said, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit. There's water and spiritual rebirth. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's water in the Spirit. It's not two births. It's one supernatural birth. It's being purified in the presence of God. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. You'll no longer idolize anything but God when I save you and when I make you clean. And I'm going to give you a new heart and it's going to pulsate for the glory of God. You're going to have a passion deep inside of you for God more than you love anything or anyone else. And that's going to happen because I'm going to take up residence in your life. I'm going to put my spirit inside of you. It's that water and that spirit. Dear friends, in verse 5, Jesus is teaching the precious new covenant promise of the doctrine of spiritual regeneration when God makes spiritually dead people spiritually alive. That's why Jesus answered in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, hello, Ezekiel 36, hello, Jesus, the Redeemer, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The fourth observation out of seven that we see in this portion of the interchange is Jesus clearly teaches that the flesh only begets flesh and the Spirit alone begets Spirit. The flesh in verse 6 is human birth. The Spirit is the new birth, regeneration. So the simple, well-known, worn-out way of putting it that's really, really good. Good theology packed down into a little cliche-sounding phrase. What Jesus is saying in verse 6 is this. If you are born once, you will die twice. If you are born twice, you will die once. If you are born one time, you will die physically and spiritually and perish in hell forever. If you are born two times, physically and spiritually, you will die one time physically, but you will live forever in the eternal bliss of God's own presence. The fifth observation from the second part of the interchange, this truth, being born again is so fundamental, so basic, so step one, it shouldn't amaze anybody. Jesus says in verse 7, why are you amazed? He actually says it emphatically. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. This shouldn't shock you. Wait, 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 wait. I'm a spiritual leader. I'm revered by all my peers as a spiritual leader. I'm a really good Bible teacher. I passed all the exams and I made it to the upper echelon of being spiritual in my day. And you're telling me I've never seen God. And now you're saying to me, don't let that amaze you. It's so fundamental, this ought not amaze us. If you don't have a new heart evidenced by a new love, new appetite, new passions, 
Those aren't the cause of your regeneration. They're the symptom of your regeneration. A love for God's people. A love for God's Word. A love for God's Son. A love for God's Spirit. A love for God's glory. A love for the advance of the Gospel so that more people can love God's Word and prize God's Spirit and cherish God's Son so that they can help more people embrace God's Son and be filled with His Spirit and united to God so they can tell more people. If you don't have that, where's the new birth? The sixth observation, verse 7. Jesus believes that this teaching applies to everybody. Do not be amazed that I said to you, up until this point, it's all been singular pronouns. You, Nick, you, Nick, you, Nick. Verse 7, middle of the verse, it changes to plural. Do not be amazed that I said to you, y'all need to be born again. Everybody. It's you plural in the middle of the verse. Nicodemus is now standing before the the eyes of the thrice holy Jesus who Isaiah trembled before 700 years prior when he saw the exalted Christ on his throne and his radiant holiness. And Isaiah was undone because he knew he was unclean and he lived among a people of unclean lips. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, now it's your turn to stand in front of the same King of glory And realize not only do you need to be born again, all of y'all need to be born again. The seventh and final observation from this interchange is verse 8. Jesus believes the Spirit of God is sovereign in human salvation. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What an illustration for Jesus to choose. The wind blows where it wishes. All you get is to hear the sound of it. You don't know where it originates. You don't know where it terminates. You just know that it's blowing. Jesus is no doubt communicating that man cannot do anything to control the wind. That power of nature originates and culminates wherever it wills and terminates wherever it wills. We can only see the effects of it. We see the leaves rustling in the trees and the trees swaying in the wind. So also are all who are spirit-born. Man doesn't cause his rebirth. But everyone can see the effects when God causes somebody to be reborn. Do you see that connection? Just as we can see all the beautiful pictures for those who didn't know what Tommy was referring to a moment ago in his comments or his pastoral prayer we had two precious babies born in the life of our church yesterday little Asher David Jones and little Nora Leanne McClarty both moms and babies are doing well we give God glory for them and and what a joy just seeing the pictures and rejoicing with the families and praying for those little ones for whom we prayed for many months while they were in utero everybody can see when somebody's born physically so also we can see the effects when God causes a sinner to be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life by the agency of the sovereign spirit F.F. Bruce says as the coming and going of the wind cannot be controlled by human power or wisdom 
So the new birth of the Spirit is independent of human volition. The hidden work of the Spirit in the heart cannot be controlled or seen, but its effects are unmistakably evident. Remember Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones? Ezekiel 37, when deadness was brought to life by the free agency of the power of the Spirit of God attending the preaching of the prophet and giving life to those who were dead. That's what John's talking about here when he's referring to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. He's giving an example selectively chosen to drive home the same point that he was saying in chapter 1. We're not talking about people who are born of the will of the flesh or born of blood, or born of the will of man. We're talking about people being born of God. Jesus believes that the Spirit of God, like the wind blowing that you can't control, you can put up all the mechanisms you want to on planet Earth, and you're not going to control when and where the wind starts and ends. You you can make a fan and cause a breeze, but you cannot create and control the wind. It's free of all human manipulation. And Jesus believes that the Spirit of God is totally sovereign in human salvation. The third and final interchange, it's the shortest. We only learn one thing about Nicodemus in this passage. It's verses 9 to 15. Just like the story in chapter 2 ended with the water being changed to wine abruptly, You almost don't even get the end of the story. What happened at the wedding? Did everybody partake? Did it last seven more days? We don't know. Look how abruptly Nicodemus drops off the scene. The only thing we learn about him in this third part of the interchange is that he was perplexed. Verse 9. Last statement we get from Nick. How can these things Do you see a man in checkmate? Do you see a spiritually proud man who's now brought to his spiritual knees? Do you see a man who's not trying to teach Jesus anything? He's just befuddled to his bones. He doesn't know how it can be this way. He spent his whole life becoming a rabbi. He knows how to get from A to B and from B to C and from C to D. He knows how to walk it out and accomplish his goals. And now he's in a position where he can do absolutely nothing to commend himself to God. How can these things be? I wonder if you've ever been so perplexed. I wonder if you've ever been put in a position of total spiritual submission, incapable of wiggling your way out of it with your own self-sufficiency and religious know-how, entirely dependent on God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I wonder if you've ever not trusted your religion and entrusted yourself to the righteousness of the risen Christ. Have you been brought by God to see this simple, fundamental truth? You must be born again. What do we learn from Jesus? Five things. Verse 10, someone can be regarded as a spiritual teacher and at the same time not understand even the basics of spiritual life. 
That's what I was talking about earlier, verses 9 and 10. Verse 10 says it clearly. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? I mean, if there's ever a passage that causes me to go into my prayer closet, this is it. I'm that guy. Pastors, church leaders, elders, deacons, Bible teachers, seminary professors. That's my tribe. And Jesus is saying, you can be all that and not be born again. Number two, Jesus speaks with divine authority again. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you. Number three, verse 11, Jesus knows and testifies of what he's seen. He's not talking about hearsay. He says, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen. This is firsthand. You can disagree with him, but you're going to be wrong. He's the witness on the stand who was there and knows exactly how it goes down. And when he testifies, it's verbatim. Number four, verse 11 and 12, carnal man does not have the capacity to accept Jesus' testimony. Verse 11, you do not accept our testimony. It's the end of the verse. Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Carnal people have no capacity to accept Jesus' testimony. Do you want to know why lost people don't believe the gospel? Because they can't. They cannot. Isn't this an amazing assignment from heaven that God has put on my little life? To tell an impossible message to dead people. That's my assignment. You can't believe, and I can't cause you to believe. Carnal man has no capacity to accept Jesus' testimony. You have to be spiritually reborn. The Spirit has to make you alive and give you the capacity to respond to, gasp for air like a newborn baby. And if you're not alive, you can't gasp. Fifth and final observation is verses 13 and 14. I believe Jesus has been building to this crescendo. Jesus descended from heaven to become a curse for sinners so that He might be the Savior from sin's curse for sinners. Long, wordy way to put it. I get that. I'll say it again, but don't get tripped up on that. Just listen. Jesus descended from heaven to become a curse for sinners so that He might be the Savior from sin's curse for sinners. Now that Nick is perplexed, Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Those words, ascended, descended, appeared just not many passages earlier in John's Gospel where Jesus is speaking to Nathaniel and he takes Nathaniel back to Genesis 28, Jacob's Ladder. And he points to himself, to Nathaniel, in the Old Testament as the only mediator between earth and heaven. The only access between man and God. And here he's doing the same thing. But he picks a different passage. It's not Genesis 28 this time. And there's no doubt in my mind that Nicodemus knew exactly what he was talking about as soon as he said it. He doesn't elaborate. It's not a sermon 
It's a reference. It's like me standing up here and saying Psalm 23. See you guys later. You know it. John 3.16, have a good day. You know it. Verse 14 is Jesus doing that to Nicodemus. Numbers 21. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. What's Jesus doing for the teacher of Israel who's headed for hell? He's showing Nicodemus that he's the self-identified fulfillment of Numbers 21. What happened in Numbers 21? Oh, how I want to preach a really long sermon on it, but let me just tell you the basics. Israel was fiery serpent bitten for their rebellion against God. God said something strange to Moses. Make a bronze serpent. Go get you some metal, bronze, fashion it into a serpent, put it on a standard, a pole, a rod, a stick, a staff, and hold it up in the air, and anybody who looks at it will be healed. And some of Israel looked and some didn't. Because some of them probably thought it was as, as absurd as it sounds like it is. I'm dying because I'm poisoned by snakes biting me. And you're telling me to look over here at a piece of art that you created in the fire last night. And so they wouldn't look, and they died. But the ones who did look, Numbers 21 says, were healed. What a strange analogy for God to use for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've preached it here before. Don't tune me out if you've heard it before. A serpent, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. The Son of Man, Jesus is clearly referring to Himself as the fulfillment now of Daniel 7. So you've got Numbers 21 and Daniel 7 packed into verse 14 and Nicodemus knows what he's talking about now. As the serpent was lifted up by Moses in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Could you imagine standing in Jerusalem on the day of Jesus' crucifixion? He was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning. The sun's coming up. It's beaming now over the hills just about the time they tack him to a piece of wood. They prop him up in between two thieves, they drop his cross post in a hole and on the cross beam, there is the Son of Man stapled. And you're down in the valley in between Jerusalem and Golgotha. And you just look up and the sun's behind them so all you see is the silhouette. You can see a crowd bustling around but above their heads you see three crosses and three crucified. And on the middle you see on that cross from your vantage point with the sun in the background, the silhouette of a man totally writhing in pain. And from where you're standing, it looks like a snake on a stick. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that Whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. How are you born again? Look at the cross of Christ. 
Nicodemus had all the right answers and no right answer all at the same time. Jesus must be lifted up if you're ever going to get eternal life. The purpose of his crucifixion was so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. That's the parallel to look in Numbers 21. All you do is look. What are you going to do? Stand in front of God and boast about how good you are at looking? No. Jesus is clearly saying you get no credit. It's the Spirit who takes his gracious hands and puts them on your cheek and turns you to Christ. He's the one who opens your eyes and puts in the salve so that you can see that Jesus suffered in your place so that you could be reborn and forgiven of your sin. Or to use Ezekiel's language, you can be washed with pure water. You can have the Spirit of God planted inside of you. God will take up residence inside of you and make you the home of the King. How are we reborn? This to me is amazing. It's gloriously amazing because God gets all the glory. Here's how we're reborn. God sends a prophet like Ezekiel to a valley of dead bones like you. And he says, preach to them. How absurd. Everybody's dead. The message is impossible. I'm telling you that I believe that a 33 and a half year old man got up from the grave. And if you don't put all your hope in him, you're going to hell forever. It sounds ridiculous. And you're dead and can't believe it. Apart from the work of the Spirit. So the word of the Gospel proclaimed, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word concerning Christ. That's how you're reborn. The living and abiding word of God. You're reborn by the Spirit of God attending such preaching. Such telling of the Gospel. So when a person like me stands up and says, Jesus is that snake on a standard. Jesus is that serpent lifted up on the cross to die for your sins, not his own, so that you could be forgiven of all your rebellion against God, including Nicodemus, all your spiritual pride that makes you think God likes you more because you know a few more Bible verses than the next guy. So God sends a preacher. The Spirit attends the preaching. And the wind blows. And life is imparted to your soul. So I conclude with this. Is Nicodemus in heaven? People don't get to heaven because their name's in the Bible. Is Nicodemus in heaven? We can't say definitively, but he's one of the guys I'm going to go looking for. I think John wants us to think he's there. It's not because of this passage. Two other times he's mentioned in John's Gospel. Chapter 7, he seems to be indicating that he thinks Jesus might be the Messiah. Verse 50, you can go read that one for yourself later. But chapter 19, after Jesus dies on that cross, that snake on that standard, and he suffers for your crime, not his own, and he takes your curse like the serpent got in Genesis chapter 3 so that you could be set free from all of sin's curse and be given eternal life with God forever. When that Savior died on that cross, a man named Joseph of Arimathea asked permission from Pilate to take his body down and go put it into his own, Joseph's tomb. But Joseph didn't work alone. He had a friend. 
John 19.38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being the disciple of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight, his whole life savings. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. One of the first people to touch the corpse of the Christ was, I believe, a man who trusted him for eternal life. Nicodemus saw Jesus die on that cross. Or he was close enough at least that as soon as he breathed his last breath, he was there to take his body down off of it on the very same day he died. And I believe that either before then or at that moment, Nicodemus said what, Pilgr what Christian said in Pilgrim's Progress when his wife is saying, you're a fool for going after Jesus like he can save you. His kids are saying, come back home, Dad. You're wasting your life. Let's, let's, let's live in Vanity Fair. Christian puts his fingers in his ears and he runs across the meadow and he goes to the wicket gate, and he eventually gets to the cross, and when his fingers are in his ears and his family's saying, you're an idiot to go after Jesus. You think he can save you? And he says, life, life, everlasting life. Life, life, everlasting life. And he repeats it until he finds his way all the way to the cross where his burden rolls away. And I believe Nicodemus, at the foot of the cross, I'll find out in glory, looked up at that, corpse that was lifted up like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and Nicodemus was born again man oh 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 that you would be born again let's pray together father we do ask that the sovereign holy spirit would blow into the hearts of every person who has not yet seen or entered the kingdom of God because they're spiritually dead. And you would cause new life. United to Christ, forgiven of sin, eternal bliss. Let us look like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and everybody who looked was healed, let us look to the cross, to the Son of Man who was lifted up so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. Oh God, thank You for spiritual life. We glorify You. In Jesus' name, Amen.